0: And welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Before we begin today, uh, just a brief announcement that there will be an announcement at the end of the show. That's it. You know, I don't like to clutter up the beginning of the show with those kinds of announcements. But if you would like to stick around for a minute at the end, it would be appreciated. We've spent much of this season talking about the Mediterranean world. Even our last two episodes talking about uh, the nation of Serbia, we're still talking about a nation that's generally speaking in that Mediterranean sphere. I mean, it was part of the Roman Empire, part of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, It is within that uh, civilizational hot zone, so to speak, but what we haven't looked at are some of the more adjacent areas. One of those areas, the one that we'll be looking at in this episode, is Ethiopia. The nation of Ethiopia is not part of the Mediterranean world, but it's adjacent, and its history is intimately tied to the people who live just a little ways north. There is a famous quote from Napoleon that says, History is a set of lies that people have agreed upon. And sometimes to understand what makes people a nation, what makes them unique, you have to understand more than just the bare facts of the history. You've got to dig a little deeper and understand their myths. Now, this is not unique to Ethiopia. When you study Greek history, for instance, oftentimes people will start with the Odyssey or the Iliad or uh, I was going to say the Trojan War, but that basically is the Iliad, right? these stories that are mostly mythological but which have some grains of truth right the story of the iliad is fictional we can assume there was no hero named achilles who was the son of a god and dipped into a magic stream and died when shot in the heel right but as it turns out there was a city of troy there were several cities of troy and It looks, at least from the archaeological evidence, as if there was some kind of conflict between the Trojans and the Greeks. Do we know the facts of that conflict? No. But we do know the myths, right? We have the Iliad. We have the Odyssey. We can trace that back. When we study Roman history, oftentimes people will start with the founding myth of the city of Rome, the two brothers, Romulus and Remus, who were raised by a she-wolf. Again, this story is obviously mythical, but it tells you something about what the people of Rome believed. Well, if you want to understand the people of Ethiopia and what makes them unique, you have to understand their myths. And in the case of Ethiopia, you have to go back a long way. Ethiopia is actually as old as humanity itself. It is older than humanity in some senses. If you are familiar with the skeleton of Lucy, the Australopithecus, uh, the pre-human skeleton uh, that is 3.2 million years old, well, that skeleton uh, was found uh, in Ethiopia. Well, we're not going to go back that far. That is the realm of archaeologists and paleontologists. We will go back a little bit earlier than the realm of historians, though. That's part of the fun of not being a historian. We're free to do that. So we'll go back to the 10th century BC, to biblical times the age of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. This is the time and place of pseudo-history, where we glean what we can from legend and archaeology. But before we dig into those legends, it's important to understand where Ethiopia is. Geography is king. If you are going to understand a people, you have to understand their environment and you have to understand their neighbors. Well, Ethiopia is located south of Egypt. Right? Modern Ethiopia, the nation of Ethiopia, is a landlocked country. Ancient Ethiopia was a little bit broader. It included the territory of modern-day Eritrea along the Red Sea coast. And if you're familiar with your geography, you can understand why that could be an advantageous position for a country in the ancient world. Right There's all kinds of trade going between Arabia and Egypt and up and down the Horn of Africa, and all that trade has to go through the Red Sea. And that source of wealth is, for most of its history, along Ethiopia's northeast border. Now, to the west, the territory is roughly bordered by what is called the Blue Nile. This is one of the two main uh, forks, the two main smaller rivers that uh, becomes the Nile when it reaches Egypt. Uh, The other is the White Nile. Uh, That one is further west. It goes all the way south to Lake Victoria in Tanzania. That's the one that uh, was not even discovered by Europeans until British explorer John Speak showed up there in 1858. That's not to say it was undiscovered by everybody. Obviously, there were people living there already. And from outside the area, uh, Arab slavers had come inside to... uh, kidnap some of these people and sell them into slavery so it was known to the Arabs but in general people from outside don't go down the White Nile in history the terrain is harsh there's not a lot there worth conquering and the uh, Blue Nile where Ethiopia is at is where most of the activity occurs upstream of Egypt Now, the Blue Nile originates in the mountains in the very heartland of Ethiopia in a lake called Lake Tana. This lake itself is surrounded by harsh terrain. Again, it's mountainous, uh, and this is important in Ethiopia's history because this area is easily defended. As a matter of fact, it's so easily defended that Ethiopia is the only African country never to have been colonized by an outside power. As a matter of fact, this area around Lake Tana is the only area that we can consistently say is part of Ethiopia. See, it's tough to define the ancient Ethiopian borders in particular. We don't have a lot of local sources. What we have at least in terms of anything written, are uh, sources from the Greeks. And what the Greeks uh, called the Ethiopians was... uh, Ethiopian literally is Greek for uh, burnt face. It simply refers to someone who has darker skin than an Egyptian, which would be, well, pretty much anybody south of Egypt. Uh, That said... Uh, In addition to this area around Lake Tana, we can say with pretty good certainty that the Red Sea Coast, that area in modern Eritrea I was talking about, uh, that that area has also been part of Ethiopia through most of history. Uh, And the reason we can say that is because of archaeologists. They've found obelisks in that area, which are more or less identical to the obelisks built around, Around the same time, at Lake Tana, it indicates that you had the same civilization in both of those areas. But regardless of Ethiopia's exact geographic extent at the time, in the 10th century BC, it was ruled by a woman named Makeda. Now, in the Ethiopian tradition... Makeda is identified with none other than the Queen of Sheba, the biblical figure who visited King Solomon. Now, most historians, uh, most biblical historians, I say, uh, identify her with the Queen of Saba. That's a kingdom in Arabia uh, which was known to have uh, many queens in addition to kings. Most ancient societies were led by men, so any time you have a queen, it's usually because there's something cultural in that society that says it's okay to have queens. But we'll go with the Ethiopian interpretation for now. Again, this is a myth that may or may not necessarily be true, but what matters is that people believe it. Now, Queen Makeda was queen of a kingdom called Damat. That is the ancient name for what we now call Ethiopia. And to be even more confusing, it's actually just written as uh, DMT. We're not 100% sure what the actual vowel sounds are. Again, this is common with uh, ancient languages in the Middle East. So we say Damat, but for all we know it was Domut or something like that, we'll roll with it. Damat, the kingdom where Ethiopia now is, is ruled by a woman named Makeda. And the story of Makeda is written down in an Ethiopian sacred text called the kabra The Kabra-Nagast is parallel in many ways to the Old Testament. As we'll see, it even has a lot of the same stuff in terms, not necessarily of the stories, but of uh, dietary laws and uh, laws of behavior that were expected of the Jewish people. Well, at this time, according to the Kabra-Nagast, when Makeda is queen of Ethiopia... King Solomon is building his temple in Judea this was what was known as the Temple of Solomon and it was a huge undertaking so according to the story uh, King Solomon uh, put out the word throughout uh, the entire Middle East and North and South saying that he needed wood, he needed gold, he needed all kinds of supplies for his temple, and he was willing to pay good money. Well, an Ethiopian merchant named Tamarin decides to do some business with King Solomon, and he leaves Ethiopia and goes to Arabia, picks up a bunch of expensive hardwoods as well as some sapphire stones, and delivers those to Jerusalem. While he is in Jerusalem, this merchant named Tamron hears the wisdom of King Solomon. He is impressed with Solomon's teachings. And, of course, Tamron also becomes very rich from this large delivery he has brought the generous Jewish king. Tamron works directly for Queen Makeda. He is one of her servants. So when he returns to Ethiopia, he tells her about his journey and about the wisdom of Solomon. And Makeda is so impressed that she decides that she has to go see this Solomon guy for herself. So she travels to Judea, and on her journey, she brings along a lot of gifts for Solomon. And she gives them to him when she arrives, and in return, uh, he gives her gifts, and he lets her stay in his palace during her visit. And Queen Makeda and King Solomon end up becoming friends. There are several stories in the Kebra Nagast about their conversations. Most of them are religious parables of one type or another. And here's just one. At one point, uh, Solomon takes Makeda on a tour of his temple, which is currently under construction. And while they're on the construction site, he sees a laborer, and this is a very strong man. He is carrying a heavy stone on his back, and even as he's carrying this heavy stone, around his neck he's wearing a heavy sling full of water. And he's hauling this stone and this large sling of water to the construction site. Solomon asks him to stop, and he says, quote, Look at this man. Wherein am I superior to this man? And in what am I better than this man? And wherein shall I glory over this man? For I am a man, and dust and ashes, who tomorrow will become worms and corruption." And yet at this moment I appear like one who will never die. Who would make any complaint against God if he were to give unto this man as he hath given unto me, and if he were to make me even as this man is? Are we not both of us beings, that is to say men? As is his death, so is my death, and as is his life, so is my life. Yet this man is stronger to work than I am. For God giveth power to those who are feeble just as it pleaseth him to do so. And this particular saying by Solomon turns the conversation to religion. And as they're discussing religion, Makeda tells Solomon that the Ethiopians, the people of Damat, worship the sun. In return, Solomon tells her about the Hebrew God and the biblical law and the Ten Commandments. But all good things must come to an end, and eventually it comes time for Makeda to leave and return to her homeland. When Solomon finds out, he decides to give her a farewell feast, and he doesn't just invite her, he invites all of his top government ministers and the leaders of the various tribes of Israel so that Makeda can learn how Solomon administers his country in his great wisdom. And indeed, it is a sumptuous feast, and Makeda learns a lot by talking to Solomon's underlings, But she gets a little bit more than she bargained for out of this farewell feast. See, that night, Solomon proposes marriage. Solomon is, of course, already married to more than one woman. These are ancient times, and polygamy is a thing. But Makeda is hesitant. You see, Makeda is a virgin, and by law... Damat can only be ruled by a queen, and that queen must be a virgin. So, if she comes to know Solomon in the biblical sense, Makeda will essentially be giving up her throne. So, she agrees to Solomon's proposal of marriage on the condition that it's only a ceremonial marriage. In other words, they are not going to consummate the marriage, and Solomon swears that he will not take her virginity as long as she takes nothing from his house that is not hers, and they are married that very night at the feast. Well, if you're familiar with the Solomon of the Old Testament, his wisdom cuts both ways. He is a great and forbearant ruler, but he's also a little bit conniving. And in this story, Solomon lives up to his reputation. See, he drugs Makeda's drink. Now, don't worry, there's nothing terribly creepy going on here. He's not going to make her pass out or anything like that. No, he's just going to make her thirsty. Whatever this powder is that Solomon adds to her drink makes Makeda get a terribly dry throat and she's dying for a drink of water. And when they go to bed that night, she on her side of the bed and Solomon on his, Solomon pretends to be drunk and he pretends to fall right to sleep. As soon as he pretends to fall asleep, Makeda gets up for a drink of water. She tiptoes across the room, and as she is lifting the jug of cool water to her lips, Solomon walks up behind her and catches her in the act. And he says that she has taken something from his house that was not hers. And Makeda honors her oath, And that night, the two sleep together as man and wife. After the marriage is consummated, Solomon has a vision in his sleep. And in his vision, the sun rises over the kingdom of Israel. But then the sun leaves and goes to shine over Ethiopia instead. And it stays there for a while until an even brighter sun appears again in Israel. This is symbolic and it is foreshadowing of what will happen later in the story. The first sun that rises over Israel and leaves for Ethiopia represents the Ark of the Covenant. Spoilers. And the second sun, the sun that rises over Israel, represents Jesus. But it's going to be about a thousand years or so before he comes around. Regardless, at this time, Solomon does not fully understand the meaning of his vision. Apparently, his legendary wisdom has deserted him for the moment. And, uh, a bit sad, he goes to see Makeda off, and she departs with a caravan, according to the story of 6,000 camels loaded with gifts. And Solomon also sends Makeda with a ship to traverse the sea, and, quote, a vessel that could traverse the winds, unquote. From what we could tell, this is, Some kind of flying boat, apparently, that Solomon invented in his wisdom. Not miraculous. It's just a vessel that only someone as wise as Solomon could create. And in addition to all of these strange and mysterious gifts, Solomon gives Makeda his own signet ring. He tells her about his dream. He tells her that if she has a child by him, if she has a son, that that son must come back to Israel to meet his father and become his heir. As it turns out, when Makeda returns to the land of Damat, to Ethiopia, she does have a son, and she names him Menelik. Now, Menelik grows up to be very strong. He's skilled in the art of the hunt, he's a skilled warrior, and he also inherits his father's wisdom. Makeda does not want Menelik to go meet Solomon. She thinks if he leaves for Israel, he will be so enamored of his father's wisdom that he will never come back to Ethiopia So she tells a series of lies to try and placate Menelik, at one point she tells him that he was immaculately conceived and he believes that for a few years, but he's a wily kid and he figures it out, and by the age of 22, Menelik finally convinces Makeda to tell him the identity of his father. And when he finds out that his father is none other than the great and wise King Solomon of Israel, he insists that he has to go see Solomon. So Makeda reluctantly agrees and sends Menelik to Israel in the company of an honor guard. This honor guard is led by none other than Tamron, that merchant who first introduced Makeda to Solomon's wisdom all those years ago. In addition to Tamron and the honor guard, Makeda also sends Solomon's signet ring with Menelik. And she sends him with a message. And what she says is that while Ethiopia has always been ruled by a virgin queen... She wants Solomon to declare Menelik to be king instead. Now, I should point out here that Makeda is clearly not a virgin herself and is clearly continuing to be queen, so maybe all this evasiveness about Menelik's fatherhood and the supposed immaculate conception, maybe that had something to do with her keeping her position. But at this point, she wants her son to become king. Well, as it turns out, it was entirely unnecessary for Makeda to send Menelik with Solomon's signet ring. See, Menelik looks so much like Solomon that when he first sets foot in Judea, some local citizens panic. They think that Solomon himself is secretly touring the country, and uh, they send some messengers to Jerusalem, to the palace, to see if Solomon is still there. If this guy wandering the countryside who looks like Solomon is actually Solomon. And when Solomon in Jerusalem finds out that there's somebody who looks just like him wandering around the countryside, he sends his top army commander out to find this guy, and this commander finds Menelik, explains what's going on, and brings him to Jerusalem where Solomon meets him. And here's what the Kabra-Nagast has to say about their meeting. Quote, when King Solomon saw him, he rose up and moved forward to welcome him, and he loosed the band of his apparel from his shoulder, and he embraced him with his hands resting on his breast. And he kissed his mouth, and forehead, and eyes, and said unto him, Behold, my father David hath renewed his youth, and hath risen from the dead. And Solomon the king turned round to those who had announced the arrival of the young man, and he said unto them, Ye said unto me, He resembleth thee. But this is not my stature, but the stature of David my father in the days of his early manhood, and he is handsomer than I. And Solomon the king rose up straight away, and he went into his chamber, and he arrayed the young man in apparel made of cloth embroidered with gold, and a belt of gold, and he set a crown upon his head, and a ring upon his finger. And having arrayed him in glorious apparel which bewitched the eyes, he seated him upon his throne, that he might be equal in rank to himself. And he said unto the nobles and officers of Israel, O ye who treat me with insolence among yourselves, and say that I have no son, look ye, this is my son, the fruit that hath gone forth from my body, whom God the Lord of Israel hath given me, when I expected it not. Needless to say, this is quite the greeting. But Menelik remembers his mother Makeda's message, and he passes it on to Solomon. And Solomon refuses. He does not want Menelik to be king of Ethiopia in Makeda's place. He says that a son belongs to the father and a daughter to the mother, and since Menelik is a son... He belongs to Solomon. He should stay in Israel and become king and rule there. And they start debating about it because Menelik wants to go home. But Solomon does his best to convince the young man. The Kebra Nagast goes on, And then Solomon sent unto the young man evening and morning dainty meats, an apparel of honor, And gold and silver. And he said unto him, It is better for thee to dwell here in our country with us, where the house of God is, and where the tabernacle of the law of God is, and where God dwelleth. And the young man, his son, sent a message unto him, saying, Gold and silver and rich apparel are not wanting in our country. But I came hither in order to hear thy wisdom, and to see thy face, and to salute thee, and to pay homage to thy kingdom, and to make obeisance to thee, and then I intend thee to send me away to my mother and my own country. For no man hateth the place where he was born, and everyone loveth the things of his native country. And though thou givest me dainty meats, I do not love them, and they are not suitable for my body. But the meats whereby I grow and become strong are those that are gratifying to me. And although thy country pleaseth me even as doth a garden, yet is not my heart gratified therewith. The mountains of the land of my mother where I was born are far better in my sight. And as for the tabernacle of the God of Israel, if I adore it where I am, it will give me glory. And I shall look upon the house of God which thou hast built and I will make offering and make supplication to it there. And as for Zion, the tabernacle of the law of God, give me a portion of the fringe of the covering thereof, and I will worship it with my mother and with all those who are subject to my sovereignty. This debate between Solomon and Menelik goes on for several paragraphs, but... Finally, Solomon relents. He agrees to make Menelik the king of Ethiopia. And for that task, Solomon gathers together all his nobles, all the leaders of the tribes of Israel, and he orders each one of them to send a child with Menelik when he returns to Ethiopia. The intention here is to send a whole bunch of Jews back so that Menelik is able to follow Jewish law, the dietary laws, the other prescriptions, and so on. And at this gathering, Solomon also anoints Menelik in a traditional Jewish ceremony. He anoints him as one would anoint a king of Israel. As part of this, he gives Menelik a regnal name, and that ceremonial name is none other than David, Solomon's father and the first king of Israel. And as part of this ceremony, one of the priests in the uh, gathering uh, is tasked with reading off a list of curses that will happen if Menelik does not follow the God of Israel. And this is one of those instances where you're reading a sacred text and you start to chuckle a little bit because it's just a whole page of curses and horrible things that are going to happen to Menelik if he changes back to the old Ethiopian religion. And here's just a sampling, uh, quote, "'Thou shalt marry a wife, and another man shall carry her away from thee by force.'" Thou shalt build a house, and shall not dwell therein. And thou shalt plant a vineyard, and shall not harvest the grapes thereof. Men shall slay thy fat oxen before thine eyes, and thou shall not eat of their flesh. And it goes on and on and on and on like that, and then. In the next section of the kabra we are greeted to a similarly long list of blessings that Menelik will receive if he does follow the Jewish law. And these blessings are read off by another priest. It's a similarly long list. And we get yet a third list, as these ancient sacred texts like to do. The kabra tells us the names of all the Jews who are going back to Ethiopia with Menelik. But not all of these Jews are happy. Remember, this is a command of Solomon that they're just going to up and leave their homeland in Israel and spend the rest of their lives in a strange and foreign place in Ethiopia. And it should come as no surprise that some of these Jews were not happy with uh, being sent away like this. And... At the very least, they would like to take something of their homeland along with them. So, a group of these Jews who are being sent with Menelik hatch a plan. They plan to steal the Ark of the Covenant. I say plan. It's kind of a half-baked plan at this point. See, one of them gathers up some money to take to a carpenter, and he has a box built with leftover wood from the temple construction. And the idea is to use this box to steal the Ark. But they still don't know how they're going to accomplish this. And that night, one of them supposedly has a vision from an angel this young man who has the vision from the angel. His name is Azarias, and he is none other than the son of Israel's high priest. And in his dream, Azarias sees an angel who gives him a command. The angel approves of the plan to take the Ark of the Covenant, but he says that first... Azarias must do as he is ordered. And when he awakes, Azarias tells the other Jews about his command, and they are all so excited that they tell Menelik and Menelik agrees. And that command consists of a ceremonial sacrifice. When we think of Jews today, we think of rabbinical Judaism. It's A mixture of religion and culture and some ancient ceremonies. If you've never been to a Seder dinner, for instance, if you have any Jewish friends who invite you, I strongly encourage you to go. It is an experience of ancient culture and tradition that is on par with anything you'll experience from any of the major world religions. A fascinating experience. But in the ancient Jewish tradition, sacrifices were an essential part of the religion. You don't think of that today. You don't, you don't think of Jews, you know, killing a lamb and letting the blood drip down the altar and burning the corpse as a sacrifice to God. But this is the kind of thing that was done for generations in the ancient era. Now, as per Jewish law, only priests are allowed to offer a sacrifice. So, if anyone else wants to gain God's favor by a sacrifice, they have to go through the priest. They have to have the priest offer a sacrifice on their behalf. So, Menelik asks Solomon if he can offer a sacrifice at the temple before he leaves for Ethiopia. And since Jewish law requires him to offer this sacrifice by proxy, he asks that, uh, fittingly, if Azarias, the son of the high priest, can offer the sacrifice on his behalf, just as Menelik is Solomon's son. And this idea is agreeable to Solomon, so the sacrifice is performed. And this completes the angel's command to Azarias. And that night, Azarias has another dream. And in this dream, the angel tells him to wake up, gather his brothers, and go steal the Ark immediately. So Azarias wakes up, gathers his brothers gets together this wooden box they've had. And uh, sure enough, miraculously, all the doors to the temple are open. The inner and the outer doors, and nobody sees them come or go. The next morning, Menelik leaves Israel for Ethiopia with Solomon's blessing. And shortly after Menelik leaves Solomon decides to send his high priest after Menelik with a gift. Remember, Menelik had asked for part of the shroud, the sacred cloth that covers the Ark of the Covenant. Well, Solomon has second thoughts and decides to give that cloth to Menelik. So he sends his priest after Menelik with that cloth and... When the cloth catches up with the Ethiopian caravan, Azarias and his friends decide that uh, they're going to put it on the ark and show it to Menelik in its full glory. And when he sees the ark, Menelik is troubled at first, but quickly decides that since the Ark of the Covenant is this powerful sacred artifact, it is not possible that it could have been stolen without God's blessing. So he praises God for giving the Ark of the Covenant to the Ethiopian people. Now this priest, the one who had delivered the covering, he returns to Solomon, and Solomon tells the priest about his dream. And the priest interprets it and realizes that the Ark was indeed stolen. See, the covering which the priest had brought to Menelik was only the outermost of three coverings. and He never actually took the inner coverings off and looked at the Ark, and if he had, he would have seen that the actual Ark had been replaced by a box of a similar size. Solomon is furious at this theft. He leads his army after Menelik's caravan, leads them all the way down through Egypt, but... There, he loses Menelik's trail. It seems that Menelik, inheriting some of his father's wisdom, has built some sort of fancy flying wagons and simply taken to the air to escape. It's like the 900s BC version of the Berlin Airlift. Needless to say, uh, Solomon is not pleased with this development. He's distraught. I mean, he just lost the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, And he goes to bed and has trouble sleeping. And eventually, he has a vision. And in this vision, an angel tells him that the transfer of the Ark to Ethiopia was the will of God. And that Solomon's line will continue in Ethiopia. And the angel further commands him not to reveal the theft of the ark, but to continue worshiping in the temple as normal in Jerusalem. At this juncture, I should point out once again that this is the Ethiopian tradition of how events happened. Jewish tradition says that the ark disappeared much later either during the Babylonian sack of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. or shortly beforehand. Uh, Some modern historians, on the other hand, suggest that the Ark was already lost, if it ever existed, and that whatever Menelik stole was just a copy. And to complicate things further, there are other versions of the story in Ethiopian tradition, Uh, The Cabernagast that we have written down today only dates back to the 1300s, and there are other oral traditions. Some of these are different from the Cabernagast. Some of them are apocryphal supplements, but the story is far more complicated than what I am relating. I am relating the story as written in the Cabernagast because, well, that's sort of the standard, so to speak. Regardless, at this point in the 900s BC, Manelik returns to Ethiopia. He returns as a king, and he returns with the Ark of the Covenant. And he becomes the first king of the Solomonic dynasty. Not hard to figure out where that word comes from. And the Solomonic dynasty would last for nearly 3,000 years if you believe the legends. As we'll see, those legends are suspect. But if you believe them, then Menelik I was the originator of a line of kings descended from King Solomon himself that lasted until the assassination of Haile Selassie in 1974. You want to talk about historical continuity, it doesn't get much more continuous than that, at least if you believe the legends. When you're studying Ethiopian history, and you get past the reign of Menelik I, man, you really start to wish you had some of those legends, because so much of the history of Ethiopia is shrouded in mystery. The best we have for about the next thousand years after Menelik I our archaeological records. We can say very little for sure. What we do know for sure is that the small kingdom of Damat would eventually become part of the Empire of Axum. The Empire of Axum itself is first mentioned in a book called The Paraplus of the Erythrean Sea. This is a Roman document describing the various ports all the way from Egypt to China. And it lists where you would stop into port, how long you would have to sail approximately from one port to another, and the goods that you can buy and sell in each port. It was basically a handbook for merchants, And uh, this handbook does mention the Empire of Axum. And around the same time, there is also a mention of Axum in the writings of Pliny. And both Pliny and the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea describe Axum as an ivory exporting country. So if you were a Roman, you might... uh, Take some gold from Spain and sail down to the Empire of Axum and trade your gold for ivory and take it back to Rome for a bunch of profit. Or you might pick up some ivory and sail on to China and say, trade that ivory for something else and then come back, right? These merchants didn't always just trade one good for another, they would oftentimes stop in each port and make some local trades that were beneficial, you could really make a fortune on a journey from Egypt to China and back if you traded uh, intelligently at each port. And it is during this time in the 1st century AD that we get our first description of a king of Axa. This king is named Zoscalis, and the Periplus describes him as, quote, miserly in his ways and always striving for more, but otherwise upright and acquainted with Greek literature, unquote. And that last part is important. Right? It reminds us that when we read the records and the chronicles of Rome and later the Byzantine Empire, they may not mention Axum much. It was a distant land, further than Egypt, not quite as far as India, but certainly far enough for ancient people that it was almost off the edge of the map, almost to the area where you just say, here be dragons. Nonetheless, Axum is not quite off the map, and we do know some things. Most of what we know comes from Greek and Roman records. We also... Gleans of knowledge from archaeology. That field that is the stepsister, so to speak, to history. Many times history and archaeology walk hand in hand. And the best archaeological evidence we have are the coins minted by the Aksumite kings. We may not have writings about all of them. We may not know a ton of details about most of them. But they did mint coins, which means we know their names. And we have at least old-timey stamped coin versions of their images. At least it's better than nothing. It's in a way surprising that we know so little because during this time period... Axum was an incredibly wealthy empire in its own right, almost as powerful as Rome. And this is because of geography. Again, Axum controls much of that Red Sea coast, so many Axumite ports are trade hubs between India and Rome. But this cultural exchange also has side effects. And one of these cultural side effects would appear in the 4th century A.D. This time, Christianity is a young religion, but it's growing in membership, and a number of Christians and Christian missionaries move down to the Empire of Axum. And sometime in the 330s A.D., under King Azana, Aksum becomes the second country in the world to have Christianity as its official religion. The first was Armenia in 301 A.D., but give or take 30 years later, Aksum would be the second. To put this in perspective, around the same time, a little bit before King Azana, but around the same time, in 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine was fighting the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And at least began to tolerate Christianity in the Roman Empire. But in Axum, it became the official religion. Izana, largely for this reason, is the first king of Axum for whom we have really good historical records. I mean, some of the others, we don't even know their names, right? It depends if they issued coins, basically. And Izana's coins are interesting because previous Axumite coins had a disc motif, right, behind the emperor's face representing the sun god. And indeed, early in Azana's reign, we see similar coins, but later in his reign, his coins adopt a cross motif. And some of these coins even have a motto inscribed, right? You you look at a... American Quarter, and on the back you say, you know, E Pluribus Unum, right? the motto of the United States. Well, King Azana's motto is, May this please the people. He actually has that stamped into all of his coins. Well, that tells you something about him. It tells you that, although he may be king, he does care about his people, and it indicates to us that when he converted to Christianity and made it the official religion that probably had some popular support. Normally, a king who is all about popular support does not go change the religion of the country to something unpopular. So, obviously, we don't have detailed demographic information written down from this time period, but it does seem as if By this point in time, at least a large percentage of the Ethiopian population was Christian. And Azana is not just a religious figure. He is also one of the great conquerors of Ethiopia. Under his leadership, the Aksumite Empire, the early Ethiopian Empire, crosses the Red Sea... Azana conquers the southwestern coast of Arabia as far as Yemen. Not modern-day Yemen, but the southern area of Arabia that people called Yemen back in the day. And by this conquest, Azana creates an empire that bridges the Red Sea. And at the same time, he conquers his way up the Blue Nile, towards Egypt. He takes over the entire Kushite kingdom. And what this does is this gives him control of most of the Red Sea coast. That is, more trade dominance added to Axum's already advantageous position. Over the next couple centuries, things get a little bit fuzzier. We devolve again into a string of kings who we don't really know much about. We just have coins. And I'm not going to bore you with that, because you can go to Wikipedia and learn pretty much what most modern historians and archaeologists know, which is a list of names and pictures of coins. That's basically what there is. But during that time period, until the early 500s, Ethiopia does nonetheless grow. Right. For one thing, Ethiopia stops building obelisks, Right, these giant pagan monuments to the sun and moon gods. We stop seeing new ones after the early 300s, and what we see instead are new churches. So, again, we have a little bit of physical evidence to back up what these sparse historical records are telling us we can look, we can see that during this time period, Ethiopia is thoroughly Christian. Now, this does fly in the face of some of that ancient Ethiopian legend, right? According to the stories, the Ethiopians have been worshipping the Hebrew god since, give or take, the 10th century BC, but... What the coins tell us is that they were worshipping the sun and the moon right up until around the 300s when they became Christian. And if you ask any traditional historian or a Jewish historian, the Ethiopian Jewish community also showed up right around that same time thanks to the Jewish uh, diaspora. Remember that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed once and for all in 70 AD, and that the Romans abolished the province of Judea, and that this led Jews to spread throughout the world, not just inside the Roman Empire, but outside it as well. And that's when we start seeing archaeological evidence of actual Ethiopian Jews. So... In fact, the legends are false. In fact, there seems to have been no monotheistic religion in Ethiopia until the 300s. But that is not the story upon which people base their lives. The story that people base their lives on is the story of Menelik I and the Ark of the Covenant. And because history is a lie we agree on, I would argue that that legend is more important than the truth. These are ancient events. The actual physical uh, ramifications of things that happened back then can be traced scientifically. But the cultural ramifications are not so cut and dry. What people believe is more important, in many cases, than what actually happened. And in addition to his religious changes and his conquests, King Azana also helps Ethiopia the Empire of Axum at this time to develop a strong literary tradition in their native Ge'ez language. Now, most of the books that are written under his rule are Bibles. Remember that uh, at this time, writing a book literally means writing it out by hand, right? If you want to make a copy, someone has to copy it out by hand. So it's not surprising that most of the books which get copied are really important books, which in this time means mostly religious documents. But there's also a poetic tradition that begins around this time, and interestingly, thanks to the further integration of Ethiopia with Latin and Greek culture, this is when the people of Ethiopia actually start using the term Ethiopia. Right? The Aksumite people import this Greek word that was used to refer to their ancestors, and the word Ethiopia now becomes commonplace. Well, after the next string of kings, who are known from coins only... The next well-attested Ethiopian king is a king named King Caleb. Now, we know about him because he got involved with the Byzantines. So he's mentioned by the historian Procopius, and thanks to some of his actions in Arabia, he ends up being mentioned by several Arab historians as well. King Caleb... Around the year 520, he receives a letter from the Byzantine Emperor, Justin I, and this letter is asking him to help out some fellow Christians. See, there is a Jewish king in Arabia, a man named Dunuas, and Dunuas is upset about various Christian states oppressing their Jewish subjects. And in response, Dunuwas has decided that he is going to start massacring Christians to presumably make Christian states listen and stop persecuting Jews. But what this means in practice is that Dunuwas is conquering native Arab kingdoms and killing the local people who are Christians. And... The Emperor Justin of Byzantium asks Caleb to help the people of a small kingdom called Najran in central western Arabia. Uh, The Najrani people are the current targets of Dunuwas' pogroms. Now, at this point in 520 or thereabouts... Dunuas has already conquered a handful of small kingdoms, and his territory actually borders on Axum's. Right? Remember, thanks to King Azana's conquests, Axum now controls territory on the Arabian Peninsula. Well, now not only is this Dunuas guy killing Christians, but he's also on their border. So King Caleb sends an expedition to defeat him, and ultimately the expedition is successful, and Dunuwas' kingdom is added to Aksum's territory. What this means is that Aksum controls even further north on the western coast of the Red Sea than they used to. This solidifies their trade monopoly with the Mediterranean. According to legend, as Dunuwas' watched his army fall in defeat, rather than be captured, he rides his horse into the water of a nearby river. And because he is wearing heavy armor, Dunuas sinks and drowns, rather than be captured. Whether or not this particular story is true, what we can say for sure is that Dunuas's defeat ends the Jewish dominance of Western Arabia. See, at this time, right, remember the Jewish temple had been destroyed and the Jews were forcibly dispersed by the Romans and many had settled in Arabia and there were a number of Jewish states. Well, this aggressive action by Dunuas against his Christian neighbors leads to a response by the Emperor of Aksum, and the Emperor Caleb's response ultimately ends Jewish dominance over Western Arabia, and it introduces a new line of Christian kings. Now, initially Caleb installs some of these kings to be his own vassals, but that doesn't last for very long. Right there across the ocean, there are de facto semi-independent, so it is very hard for the Aksumite king to actually control these territories in Arabia. But what the Christianization of Western Arabia does do is actually sets the ground for the rise of the Prophet Muhammad. Arabia had become... At this point, a mix of Christian and Jewish and native pagan beliefs, and that is the fertile ground in which Islam first took root. And finally, let's not forget Aksum's total trade dominance over the Mediterranean, right? At this point, there are two ways to get goods from the Indian Ocean into the Mediterranean one is to use the Persian Gulf and the other is to use the Red Sea and go to Egypt while the Persians control the Persian Gulf so the mostly Christian kingdoms of the Mediterranean are relying at this point on Axumite ports in the Red Sea Axum is very wealthy And at this point, we run into yet another interruption in the history because King Caleb dies, and he's followed by another hundred years of kings who are known mostly from coins and historical fragments. We cannot say much about them. But during this time period, we do know a thing or two about what's happening in the rest of the world, and what we can say is that geography is no longer Ethiopia's friend. right? Geography used to be good for Ethiopia. Her position along the Red Sea allowed her to take advantage of trade. And when you have a small kingdom, relatively small, that gets to take advantage of all this trade between two larger kingdoms, that kingdom can grow, can become strong. But conversely... If trade dries up, that country can be very vulnerable. And that is what happens to Ethiopia in the 500s and 600s AD. The most critical event is between 639 and 646 when the Muslim Caliphate conquers Egypt. Right? Until then. Ethiopia has had a pretty clear economic path to success, right? Boats are going back and forth between Egypt and India. They have to stop in in Ethiopian ports. You're going to make some money. But with the Ottoman conquest of Egypt, all of a sudden Ethiopia is cut off. And until the 1400s, Their only meaningful contact with other Christian nations will be with the patriarchs of Alexandria and Jerusalem, right? These are major figures in the Orthodox Church with whom they have to communicate for religious reasons. But as we'll see, political and diplomatic contacts were stretched to put things mildly. And even worse, the Muslim caliphate now controls the Persian Gulf entirely through to the Mediterranean. They now have their own trade monopoly. Right? Ethiopia not only has lost its monopoly, it has lost its monopoly to another monopoly. So all of a sudden their position goes from wealthy country to very, very poor overnight. And that's how things would stand for roughly the next 300 years. That's starting in 639. Aksum would stagnate. And over this time, she would lose the rest of the Red Sea coast. Right, the Muslim Caliphate takes first their Arabian territories and then all of their sea coasts. And what this means is that Aksum, Ethiopia, is now landlocked. Right? They are limited to that mountainous area around Lake Tana in northern Africa. Being a landlocked country comes with some problems, right? In our last two episodes, we talked about Serbia and the Serbs would again and again run into trouble in World War I just not being able to get supplies, right? Because if you're going to get supplies as a landlocked country, those supplies have to come across another country. And that country has her own interests. This is something we also saw recently during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of the hardest-hit countries were those in Central Africa. And the reason they had more trouble than coastal African countries is that they were not able to receive shipments directly. So even if medicine and other supplies was able to make it through, it took longer to get there, you had to deal with customs at the border. Being an inland country is complicated and expensive. And that is something that the Ethiopian people are now going to have to deal with in our story. Even if they want to trade with other countries, they have to do it over land, they have to do it through another country's territory, right? Not even any airplanes in these days to make small shipments and circumvent those borders, And times being what they are in these days, those different countries are organized on religious lines. So if you are the Christian country of Ethiopia, good luck working out a fair and equitable trade agreement with your Muslim neighbors. In these times, it's just not going to happen. I hate to break it to you, but it does seem that Solomon's flying wagons were more myth than reality. And the Ethiopians can't just fly their goods across their rivals. They have to deal with them. And this would go on from the 630s roughly for about another 300 years. And for similar reasons... Right. Sources from this time are even more sparse. We get virtually zero information on these emperors. What we have are a few coins with a list of leaders and not even those are reliable. I mean, there's one king who supposedly ruled for 150 years out of this 300 year period. I mean, that is absurd. Obviously, this leader was an amalgamation of several people, but we don't get any information on them. We don't even have local court writings. And as a Christian nation cut off from the rest of Christianity by the Islamic conquests, the Aksumite Empire would slowly collapse over the next few hundred years. And around the year 960, that empire would fall entirely. And the person who would deliver the fatal blow to the Aksumite Empire was a person named Queen Gudit. Now, Queen Gudit is herself a controversial figure. She is not attested to terribly reliably, so we have multiple semi-reliable sources telling us about her. Some traditions say that she was a Muslim queen who wanted to wipe out the Christians. Others say that she was a Jewish queen who wanted to wipe out the Christians. And Somalian legends say that she was a warrior queen from inland Africa who wanted to wipe out the Christians. As you can see, there is sort of one common theme here, and that is that Queen Gudit wanted to wipe out the Christians. And when she does conquer what is left of the axumite Empire, she does indeed burn some churches. And whatever the cause of her invasion, the line of Menelik I is finally removed from power. That Solomonic dynasty that has been supposedly ruling the country since the 900s BC disappears in around 960 AD, and it will not reappear again for about 300 years. Queen Gudit founds what is called the Zagwe dynasty. And the Zagwe dynasty will rule Ethiopia from roughly 960 to 1270 AD. Much as with the previous dynasty, there are few written records. And this is so bad that historians, in fact, will even list different numbers of kings. The shortest list of kings... Numbers 5, the longest list, Numbers 11, we don't really know. What we do know is that probably no one of these records is entirely accurate. And We also know that despite the fact that Queen Gudit liked to burn churches, at some point the Zagwe dynasty becomes Christian. Now, we don't know exactly when that happens, but it shouldn't be surprising. It is common again and again throughout history to see rulers conquer an area and then adopt the religion of their subjects. We saw this a few episodes ago in The Hammer and the Cross with, well, first King Clovis and then King Charlemagne, right? Especially Clovis being the leader of mostly Catholic people, leaving the Aryan version of Christianity for Catholicism for the sake of unity. Well, this happens also in Ethiopia. Whoever Queen Gudit is, her descendants are ultimately Christianized. And the first one we know much about comes like 250 years after Queen Gudit, in the late 1100s. This is the Zagwe King Lalabella. Lalabella reigned from 1181 to 1221 A.D. And we know him because he built things. That's something you'll see frequently throughout history, is that some leaders are unknown, and then all of a sudden somebody comes along, they build a building, there's an inscription, there is... Some way of identifying the builder. And Lalibela does this in spades. See, in the early 1200s, towards the middle of his reign, the Crusades are going on. There is an ongoing war between the Western European Christian kingdoms and the Muslim Caliphate. The side effect of this war on Ethiopia is that Ethiopian Christians are no longer allowed to visit the Holy Land on pilgrimage. Nowadays, Christians think about a visit to Jerusalem as, you know, a nice thing they could do. Sure, that would be cool, right? But it's not a religious obligation, right? If you never... Ever go to Jerusalem. It's not like you're failing your faith. But back in the day, pilgrimage was more important. It was important for Christians to visit the land where Jesus had lived. And thanks to the Crusades, that is not going to happen for lalibela's people. So he takes a different tack from the European leaders, right? The European leaders decide to go to war over this and seize these holy sites. And what that leads to is a few centuries of war and it goes very poorly for most of the people involved. But King Lalibela of Ethiopia decides to go another route. He decides that, Well, if his people are not allowed to make pilgrimage in the Holy Land, he will make pilgrimage sites for them right at home in Ethiopia. And he ends up building 11 churches. And these are not just any churches. They are churches that today are UNESCO heritage sites. They are churches that are unique in the world because these 11 churches are carved out of the mountains. In other words, instead of building them out of stone, Lalibela orders these churches to be carved out of stone. And these 11 churches Carved by King Lalabella aren't just any churches. They are UNESCO heritage sites. And they remain today. One of the most famous tourist sites in modern-day Ethiopia is the Church of St. George in Lalabella. That city named after its founder, the pious emperor Lalabella. And the Church of St. George is carved vertically downwards into volcanic rock. To get into the church, you literally have to walk across a flat rock plain and then go down some stairs into the ground to enter the church. But the interior of the Church of St. George, and indeed the interiors of all of the Lollabellan churches, My God, they're beautiful. You have murals, you have mosaics, and you have, above all, centuries of religious tradition of people visiting these sites. And it's hard not to draw a contrast with the Crusades, right? Let's not forget... As the European Christian kingdoms made war on the Middle Eastern Muslim kingdoms, the Christian kingdoms had their fare of infighting. And over the course of the Crusades, you saw one country after the other sort of stab each other in the back. And what this meant was that the crusader forces in the middle east were not always united in fact they were rarely united but the ethiopians were they were united under their emperor and that is perhaps what allowed them to survive while the european run crusader states in the Middle East fizzled out one by one. But despite his successes, the end of Lalibella's reign is shrouded in mystery. And the reason for that is that there are two versions of the story. See, some stories say that Lalibela abdicated in favor of his young nephew, a man named Nakueto La'ab. Other stories say that Lalibela's legitimate heir was his son Yetbarak, and that Nakueto La'ab usurped the throne. Either way, uh, what we have is a uh, an abrupt end to Lalibela's reign, Nakueto Lahab takes power for 18 months, and then sometime in 1222 or 1223, Lalibela's son Yetbarak takes the throne. Even so, this situation is not even that straightforward. There seems to have been an ongoing power struggle for roughly the next 50 years and some portion of the land remains in control of Yatbarak and some portion remains in Nakuetolaob's control and they go back and forth and at the end of that 50 year period depending on whether you believe the ancient myths or not the solomonic dynasty will either come to power for the first time or return to power after a brief absence. The story itself has some parallels with an Ethiopian tradition. See, in Ethiopian tradition, at the Last Supper, uh, Christ resurrects a rooster. And this is supposed to foreshadow his own resurrection. So roosters have a special place in Ethiopian religious tradition, and according to this story, one of the heirs to the Solomonic line, a young man named Yakuno Amlak, is working as a stable boy. And one morning, as he wakes up in the feces and the hay in the stable stall, he hears a rooster, which in and of itself is nothing unusual, but this rooster is speaking human language. And what the rooster says is that whoever eats his head will be king. Well, the king also hears of the rooster and orders it to be brought to him to be eaten. However, the cook throws the head out while he's preparing the rooster and Yakuno Amlak eats it instead. Now, there are various embellishments on this story. In one version, the king imprisons Yakuno Amlak, but he escapes and raises an army. Uh, Whether or not this happens, what we do know happens is that Yakuno Amlak allies with a Muslim power just to the south of Ethiopia, a uh, kingdom called the Shiwa Sultanate. And the Sultan of Shiwa, and his armies assist Yakuno Amlak in driving out the king. And uh, Yakuno Amlak marries the king's daughter and becomes the new Solomonic Emperor of Ethiopia. You'll notice I just keep saying the king. Well, that's because the legends are a little bit slippery on which king this is uh, Nakuatola Ab or Barak. See, the stories call this king il makun but zaul makun just means the hidden one so who is this king yet barak Nakueto Laab, uh, some third party we haven't heard about we don't know regardless of the identity of zail makun the new solomonic king yakuno Amlak, is one of Ethiopia's more skilled rulers. And that's a good thing, because Ethiopia is still in a precarious position. Remember, they're still a landlocked country, and in these times, when countries are often divided along religious lines, they are a lone Christian country in a sea of Muslim countries. If you're going to survive in that situation, you have to be a good diplomat. And Yakuno Amlak is. Rather than fight all of these neighbors, he makes alliances. And in 1279, he is called upon to honor the oldest of these alliances. See, the Sultan of Shiwa, that Muslim king who had helped him regain his throne, well, now the Sultan's on the ropes. See, he's been deposed by the rival kingdom of Damat. This is not the same Damat as ancient Ethiopia. This is D-A-M-O-T. It's a small Muslim kingdom. Anyway, it has driven the Sultan of Shiwa out of power, and the Sultan goes to Yakuno Amlak for help. Uh, And Yakuno Amlak does honor their agreement and restores the Sultan to power and has a ready friend who's got his back in that part of the world. And Yakuno amlak looks even further. He sends emissaries to Byzantium with gifts and receives gifts in return. This ultimately does not come to much more than an exchange of gifts. By this time, the Byzantine Empire is a shadow of its former self, not the juggernaut, that it was a few centuries earlier. And the other thing that Yakuno Amlak is remembered for is that he plans for the succession. One thing you see a lot in, I was going to say, ancient history, but even in more modern histories, in countries where there are monarchies, uh, you see that oftentimes monarchs will not prepare for their death and you know, everything goes swimmingly right up until they die, and then there's a succession crisis. This happens you know, about every second or third Roman emperor, it seems like. Well, Yakuno Amlok avoids that trap. He knows that he is mortal, and he spends the last few years of his life co-ruling with his son, uh, a young man named Yagbeu Seon. Now after Yakuno Amlak's death, Yagbeuseon himself will only rule in his own right for 3 years from 1291 to 1294. Uh, during that time there is a rebellion in the kingdom. He successfully puts it down and he attributes his success to divine intervention. Unfortunately, Yagbeuseon depending on which story you listen to, may not have planned for the succession. Now, the official royal histories state that uh, his five sons each rule for a year, uh, from 1294 to 1299. And the the royal records say that this was by plan, but uh, other sources tell us that there was a little bit of infighting going on over those five years. Well, if it was in fighting, then the family took care of things on their own because uh, the brother's uncle, Yagbeyusayan's brother, a man named Wadam Arad, takes the throne in 1299. Now, depending on how you interpret Ethiopian inheritance traditions, this may not have been entirely legal. But, whether it was legal or not, Waiter Murad was a successful ruler of Ethiopia. For one thing, he almost immediately faces a foreign threat when a neighboring sheik declares a jihad against him. And rather than meet the sheik in battle, a battle he likely would have lost, Waiter Murad sends some spies into the sheik's camp. And these spies convince most of the soldiers to defect, and the sheikh is forced to sue for peace. And Weda Murad, dealing with all of these neighboring Muslim powers, is just like his predecessors looking for help. And At this time, the kingdoms of Spain, I should say the Christian kingdoms of Spain, were having success against uh, Al-Andalus, the Muslim kingdom of Spain. Uh, And Guayda Murad has heard of this, and in 1306, he sends an embassy to meet with the Spains. That's what Spain was called back then. People referred to the Spains because there was more than one country. Uh, Now... There are no existing Spanish or Ethiopian records of this embassy, but we know about it because the ambassadors got delayed in the Italian port city of Genoa on their return home. And an Italian cartographer named Giovanni de Caraggiano, he interviewed them. Uh, well, he is known for being the first person to map Scandinavia as a peninsula all the way up north, and interestingly, his maps end, at the southern end, just shy of Ethiopia. Anyway, what Giovanni tells us is that the embassy had visited not just the Pope in Rome uh, on their way to Spain, but they'd also stopped off in Avignon, where the antipope was. At this time there were two popes and... The Ethiopian ambassadors weren't sure which one to visit, so they just visited both of them to cover all their bases. Um, While all of this is a fascinating sidebar, the embassy to Spain ultimately comes to nothing. Uh, Ethiopia is not successfully able to make an alliance, and they remain isolated. Muayda Murad will reign for another few years until 1314. And when he dies, he is succeeded by one of the most famous emperors of Ethiopia, a man named the I. Amdaseon is either Wada Murad's son or his nephew. Again, it's not clear. It's also not clear how he comes to power. Uh, this is common in the Ethiopian imperial records. The deaths of the emperors are often left vague. We don't know. There might have been some murder going on in the royal family. Uh, It is subject to speculation. But this Omdesayan is known as a reformer, and he begins by reforming the army. See, for years, the Ethiopian army has been lightly armed and armored. And Amdaseyan upgrades their equipment. He gives them heavy spears, and he gives them large shields so they can form up in formation like their Muslim opponents. He is making his military capable of defending the country again. And he does a little more than just defend the country... In the year 1316, only two years after taking power and beginning his army reforms, Amdasean conquers north. His army retakes that part of the Red Sea coast in modern Eritrea that has traditionally been part of Ethiopia. And he once again opens Ethiopia to trade by doing this, right? They have sea access again. And not resting on his laurels, the very next year, Amdaseon turns south and conquers that Sultanate of Damat, which occupies much of the Great Rift Valley. Well, after this string of successes, Amdaseon perhaps bites off a little more than he can chew. See, in the year 1320, the Ottoman Sultan begins a series of persecutions against the Coptic Christians in Egypt. Burning of churches, things like that. And Seon sends an emissary threatening to divert the Nile if this doesn't stop. It's a pretty serious threat. Egypt relies on the Nile. Well, the Ottoman governor demands that the emissary convert to Islam and then executes him when he does not, and then continues the persecutions against the Copts. Well, in reprisal, Amdaseyan launches military raids against several of his own Muslim provinces. Right? Ethiopia is a religiously diverse empire, and there are majority Muslim areas. And uh, Amda San starts looting those areas with his army. Well, what happens is throughout this series of raids, his army slowly gets worn down and his Muslim subjects get angrier and angrier. And eventually there is a Muslim revolt led by none other than the son of that Ottoman governor of Egypt. Now, Amdaseyan is able to put down that revolt. He actually executes the governor's son. Uh, but that kicks off a series of Ottoman-backed Muslim revolts. Right, the Ottomans send money or weapons to a majority Muslim province in Ethiopia and agitate people to revolt, and Amdaseyan puts out a fire there, and then the Ottomans start a fire somewhere else and uh, so on and so forth. But these Ottoman efforts are not effective at actually causing Ethiopia to lose any territory. just causes the borders to stagnate, and by default, Amdaseyan is successful. He has retrieved that territory on the Red Sea coast, reconnected Ethiopia to trade, and expanded her territory south into the Great Rift Valley. And during his reign, Amdasean would also help cement his family's legitimacy, right? the legitimacy of the Solomonic dynasty. He would do this by having the Kebra nagast formally written down between the years 1314 and 1322. Right? Remember the Kebra nagast that Sacred document that tells the story of the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Well, this is when it was actually written down. And the story of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba and the Ark, that's only like the first third of the book. The middle part describes the lineage of the Solomonic line right down to Amdaseon. And the third part, which is Actually, the bulk of the book is a series of prophecies. In one of these prophecies, you should remember, because it says that Ethiopia will one day surpass the might of Rome. Keep that in mind as we continue our story. There are several other passages describing Ethiopia's role as the true heart of Christianity, and there's even a whole paragraph condemning the Arian and Nestorian heresies and blaming Rome for them. It seems to be an attempt to establish Orthodox Christianity as legitimate and also to you know, stir up some patriotic fervor as well amongst the Ethiopian people. And let's be honest, after all this time isolated from other Christian nations, well, the Ethiopian people might just be a little upset that they haven't been getting a lot of help down there. Regardless, um, to say on does not only sponsor the writing of the Kebra Nagast. He also sponsors all kinds of other literature, and many of the great Ethiopian poetic works come from this era. So we're going to leave off here today, where Amdaseyan presides over a prosperous and, for the time, literate empire. But this is just the beginning of the story of Ethiopia. We will continue that story in part two of Heirs to the Lost Ark. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around, folks. As promised, after this particular episode, I do have a special message, and that message is that I am launching a Patreon account. That's right. If you love Relevant History, you can support my podcast by sending me a few bucks every month. Now, right now, I don't have any tiers set up. I don't have any special rewards. I'm hoping for somebody to send me a message saying hey here's what i'd like but if that doesn't happen here's kind of what i'm thinking anybody who starts by subscribing at five dollars whenever i do introduce tiers you'll get a free upgrade to whatever the next tier is so say uh all patrons get access to some kind of special chat which i haven't developed yet but say that happens well you'd get access to that but say there's like a ten dollar tier where you get a free t-shirt or something well if you subscribe now then you will get whatever that second tier reward ends up being in the future i realize this is a dubious proposition but if you do like what you hear and you want to support more of what you're hearing, consider subscribing. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash Dan Toller podcast. That's Dan T-O-L-E-R podcast. Or just go to Patreon and search for Dan Toller T-O-L-E-R, and you'll find it. And if you don't want to, you know, send me money every month, geez, that's fine. Just subscribe to the show. You can subscribe anywhere that you already listen to your favorite podcasts. Relevant History is available on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. It's also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Deezer, Stitcher, Audible, Player FM, and several others, which I'm sure I have forgotten to mention. But if you have a favorite podcast app, chances are it's on there. If you don't like podcast apps, don't worry. The show is also on YouTube at Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T, History. You'll see the same logo you see for the podcast. It is very easy to find. And, you know, if you have any ideas or thoughts about the show or criticism or you have a suggestion for a future topic, why not shoot me a line? You can reach me on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast. Or alternatively, you could find me on Facebook at, guess what, Dan Toller. Not Dan Toller Podcast. It's just Dan Toller on Facebook. And if you just want to get everything straight from the horse's mouth, go on to dantolerpodcast.com, that's dan t o l e r podcast.com and you'll see all my episodes all my subscription links and my blog which may or may not get updated eventually at some point in the future finally I can also be reached at Dan Toler Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from you, and thanks for listening.